Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Issue Lecture Series. My name is Amanda Wan, and I'm the founder and coordinator of the Asian Issue of Lecture Series at the Institute of, of, of World Politics. For those who are not familiar with the Institute of World Politics, IWP is a graduate school of statecraft, national security, international affairs, and intelligence. We have a doctorate program as well as five master's programs and 18 certificates of graduate study and a continuing education program. The objective of this lecture series is to broaden the scope and discussion on a range of intelligence, foreign policy, and security issues attendant to the Asian geopolitical, socioeconomic, and cultural spheres of influence. Today, we have a fascinating speaker, Dr. Matthew Brazil, who will be presenting a lecture on Communist China's Modern Intelligence Reforms. Dr. Brazil is a researcher and writer. He pursued Chinese studies as, as an undergraduate at UC Berkeley and as an army officer with tours in Korea and NSA, and as a graduate student at Harvard in their Regional Studies East Asia program. After a stint as a China specialist for the Commerce Department's Office of Export Enforcement, he was assigned as a commercial officer with the U.S. Embassy Beijing, where he both promoted and controlled U.S. high technology exports to China. Afterward, Dr. Brazil spent 20 years as a security professional performing investigations in China for a chip manufacturer and leading the development of a security organization in China for an American specialty chemicals firm. His PhD dissertation at the University of Sydney described a place in the Chinese Communist Party of their intelligence organs. That and further research led to his contribution as the co-author co of Chinese Communist Espionage on Intelligence Primer published in 2019. Dr. Brazil has begun research on a second book intended to be an integrated narrative history of intelligence operations in the Chinese Communist movement. Dr. Brazil, thank you very much for having us today and I'll hand it over to you. Uh, Dr. Brazil, you're- uh... Unmute, unmuted. <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to bring you this presentation today. Um, in the spirit of reconciliation, I wanted to acknowledge that I come to you from the traditional territories of the Muwekma Ohlone people of the Santa Clara Valley, which for better or worse is now popularly known as Silicon Valley. I also want to acknowledge that I haven't had a security clearance since 1995, and my research is all, repeat all, from open sources, with the exception of a few old documents that went astray in the Beijing Panjiayuan and Shanghai Fangbang Road antique markets. So I humbly await any input that may illuminate various errata from different people. So now let's see if I can share my screen. And can you tell me if you can see my screen now? Yes, I can see that. Okay, very good. <clears throat> so we can start by, let's do that again. <clears throat> so um, for those of you who attended the previous talk I gave uh, several months ago, 
that was a, intended to be a basic introduction <clears throat> to Chinese Communist Party or CCP, espionage history and, uh, and uh, the current scene. But now what I want to do is to go over in a little bit more detail uh, with, with uh, some review, but with a little bit more detail, um, the intelligence reform program that has been in, um, in effect for about five years and that is uh, part of a much larger initiative, uh, military reform. So to start with, um, there are recognizable elements of uh, CCP espionage that appear similar to those seen in other major intelligence services. They typically serve the information requirements of their governments, of course, all of them do. Otherwise, they wouldn't really be in existence. In China, one definition of intelligence, or Qingbao, calls it investigative and other methods to collect confidential information of the other side, which is close to the various American definitions. And by the way, <clears throat> I've made available a conference paper, and uh, I'm talking from part but not all of the conference paper, and it has footnotes, including one concerning the various American definitions of intelligence. So um, Beijing's intelligence community, as we might loosely define it, has multiple agencies, apparently not as many as the 17 in Washington, but with departments and other bodies that appear to engage in interagency consultation and the establishment of standards, a practice that goes back to the post-Korean War period. The Chinese services have also been using career agents in the ostensible service of a penetrated target, to put it uh, politely, that is moles, ever since 1929. And, and I'm saying career agents, professionals, who are trained and then inserted. Uh, their first major success, which is studied today by MSS, that's Ministry of State Security uh, and other recruits, <clears throat> is called The Three Heroes of the Dragon's Lair which was a three-person spy ring inside the opposition nationalist services from 1929 to 1931. Their operation <clears throat> gave early warning of nationalist efforts to catch communists in Shanghai and other Chinese cities. When they were blown in 1931, one of their agents, Chen Zhuangfei, sounded the alarm that saved almost all of the CCP's leadership. And by the way, this is one reason why the Chinese uh, take espionage amongst their own people so seriously and they shoot them in the back of the head. And this is because uh, espionage has almost destroyed their movement more than once. Uh, whereas our own view is put them in jail for 15 years and trade them for somebody on the other side. And, uh, and may, they, may they go in peace once we trade them. Uh, we don't try to kill them when they're on foreign soil, like some people I can think of. Uh, instead, uh, we view espionage as an annoyance that has to be taken care of, um, but something that is not going to threaten our very existence. In China, however, it's existential. So a few more similarities. Um, the quality of intelligence and security operations has been on a roller coaster path throughout CCP history, punctuated by some 
major setbacks, which party historians refer to as the three left major deviate, the three major left deviations, that's leftist, right? Left deviations in the history of public security and protection, which occurred in 1931, 1943, and during the Cultural Revolution that began in 1966. But in general, after studying this, I would say there has been continuous improvement over time. CCP intelligence has always sought to cultivate various kinds of agents, be they so-called moles or spotter agents or double agents and so forth. However, while their officers often focus on ethnic Chinese with relatives in the PRC because they're easier to pressurize and require no foreign language skills to pitch, they have recruited or tried to recruit non-Chinese since at least the 1930s. If somebody tells you that they only recruit Chinese people, don't listen to them because we go back to the 1930s and we have characters like George Hottam and Edgar Snow, for example, who were spotted by Song Qingling, also known as Madame Sun Yat-sen in 1935. Uh, the book that became the bestseller that Edgar Snow wrote after his trip to Baoan and the Communist Redoubt there, um, Red Star Over China, is arguably the first major CCP intelligence international influence operation. And uh, Snow even let uh, his his friends there in Baoan edit his edit his um, edit his uh, work. So it may come as a shock to hear Song Qingling described as a secret agent, but she was at least a cooperator, regularly meeting communist agents and sometimes even acting as a live drop of sorts for materials like codebooks. We described this activity in Chinese Communist Espionage, our own book that we published in 2019. There are also films, uh, um, so on the last slide, I'll go back for a moment. Um, I picture um, a gentleman there um, named Glenn Duffy Shriver. Um, he was a willing agent, another foreigner, uh, uh, cultivated and uh, recruited in the modern day. Um, and he, his uh, case is interestingly illustrated in a uh, rather hagiographic for the FBI um, film called Game of Pawns. Anyway, going on now to slide four. Um, however, Chinese communist espionage has its unique elements as well. It's a controversial question. But in my opinion, they do not recruit tens of thousands of their fellow citizens for actual secret espionage work. That would be very insecure because uh, the CCP has always considered Chinese society, whether at home or abroad, to be full of enemies. In their history, when they send people into a hostile environment, they do so very carefully, considering a mix of factors, including ideological reliability, leverage, that is their ability to blackmail the subject, and other factors, which I'll talk about further below. So a few more oddities. Uh, that severity that I spoke to a moment ago and the party's suspicion of the masses led to the adoption of practices requiring people under the control of the CCP to cooperate in counterintelligence, counterespionage, and intelligence operations whenever asked. In the contemporary era of rule by law under Xi Jinping, it's, 
it spawned various intelligence, counterintelligence, and cybersecurity laws, which uh, many of us are familiar with. A couple of them are listed at the top there. Um, suspicion by the rulers of the ruled seems to have risen ever higher after the anti-Japanese war and the Chinese Civil War ended in 1949. From the 1950s onward, the CCP faced a society populated by more enemies among the masses than they'd ever before faced. Therefore, the CCP did not embrace a national security idea, the kind we find familiar, focused on borders and external threats to national interests, because the CCP considers internal threats to its rule to be of equal or greater concern. We might accurately say that the party and its intelligence community is just as much, if not more, focused on state security, that is preserving the rule of the CCP and its subordinate government. As a sign of this during the revolution, uh, when as the late Chalmers Johnson used to point out, it was patriotic to be a communist, agents often operated alone behind enemy lines. However, now the dominant practice seems to be agents working within sight of another comrade. In part, this is self-preservation uh, because figures from the revolution were, um, were, were um, persecuted after 1949 at the hands of more ideologically uh, perfect and vociferous rivals within the party. Um, these rear echelon comrades like Laurie Ching, the first minister of state of public security, had labored in the safety of the communist rear areas. They were adept at hurling accusations against those who in the course of their duties did their jobs by mixing with traitors, thieves, and various enemies of the CCP to obtain the intelligence that helped win their revolution. And a few more oddities here quickly. And uh, these comments go beyond what I'm saying here in the, uh, in the conference paper. Uh, there's insufficient time, therefore, to go over this next slide in detail, but I would mention uh, the emphasis on technology acquisition, that's technology acquisition, which itself uh, deserves a book or two, and there have been two books written on this that are very good. One is from 2013, Chinese Industrial Espionage, by Hannah Smolvenin and Puglisi. And the other is China's Quest for Foreign Technology, which is a relatively new book um, edited by Hannes and Tatlow, T-A-T-L-O-W, Hannes is H-A-N-N-A-S. That's China's Quest for Foreign Technology. So the main messages um, so far is that the CCP has always made the PRC, the People's Republic, into a very hard target for foreign espionage, and it appears on track to continue doing so in the age of the internet. How are they doing this? It used to be under Mao Zedong that, uh, that um, the CCP had total control of information, except for uh, maybe shortwave broadcasts or something like that uh, over their populace. And uh, it was not okay to have a shortwave radio and tune into enemy broadcasts. During that time, it was also not okay to uh, tune into shortwave broadcasts in Taiwan. Just saying, uh, the nationalists had the same sort of idea about uh, keeping control of information during that during the period before democratization in the 80s. But um, 
intelligence reform, which we're going to get into now, uh, which is the party state's attempt to regain information dominance uh, over an internet-connected China, um, is a very extensive practice. Um, foreigners have always been targeted, of course, if they're within reach um, with the development of cyber operations. But cyber operations and, uh, and uh, uh, artificial intelligence and other new technologies have made this information dominance ever easier. Um, Bill Clinton once uh, uh, famously wished the Chinese side good luck in trying to control the internet. And uh, apparently that was, a, um, that was a good luck charm because the Chinese side has been very good at controlling the internet as, uh, as, as we all, I think, have uh, noticed. So now I'm going to go into uh, what's been going on lately, and we'll talk a bit more about the intelligence reform program that's going on. So a TikTok legacy, here I'm not referring to the popular app, which is spelled without the C's, um, but to the tendency in CCP history to go back and forth between periods of strict ideology and governance on one hand, and times of relative uh, openness on the other. The Japanese invasion of China in July 1937 prompted an increased number of people, especially students in occupied cities, to trek to the CCP's base in Yan'an and join the party to resist Japan. However, well before 1940 dawned, the party's leaders began to be concerned that these new members were not only ideologically deficient bourgeois city slickers who couldn't keep their mouths shut, but that some of them also might be enemy spies. So the expanded comments in the conference paper go into a bit more detail about the modern day, but suffice it to say that the new challenges of a more assertive foreign policy and international pushback against it may be contributing to a practical effort to mount more aggressive intelligence operations. And it has certainly um, contributed to the effort to build a um, almost completely locked down um, web society and information technology uh, enabled um, society with artificial intelligence that can identify you within a minute if you're walking along in a street in Shanghai uh, to uh, to the apps, for example, that uh, ethnic Uyghurs are required to download onto their phones so that their phones can be, uh, can be monitored. So this, uh, this is a slide that'll be um, familiar to people who saw the last presentation. Sorry, sorry for the uh, duplication, but this is a very important point. And that is that uh, another possible motivation for the intense counterespionage and counterintelligence work at home um, and intelligence work abroad may be the historically high number of foreigners in China present. The last time there was such, uh, on the left side of this, uh, of this uh, table, you can see the last time there was a uh, very rapid growth over the years of foreigners in China. It was just before the uh, Sino-Japanese War of 1937 uh, began that July. This was the middle of the so-called uh, century of humiliation in the decade leading up to that Japanese invasion. 
Although China has a small number of foreign residents per capita compared to other countries, it's not a nation of immigrants and is not accustomed to masses of foreigners on their territory. So if you were a counterintelligence agent looking at uh, uh, officer in China, looking at these numbers, you might find reason for alarm. So this case breakdown that I have here on the left is a case breakdown from Nicholas Eftemiata's book, uh, Chinese Espionage Operations and Tactics, published this year. Now he was doing <clears throat> a survey of all sorts of espionage cases, um, the whole range of them from, um, from national security cases to economic cases um, and so on. And so you can see here that uh, just under, just over rather a third were professional operations by state security or the PLA Intelligence Bureau. Um, and that smaller numbers were being run by private firms and, and state-owned enterprises, which were still pretty big in terms of percentage, very significant. Um, on the right, right-hand column there, um, a smaller number of cases, which were economic espionage cases only, um, are... Uh, it's my old friend, Scam Likely. So, um, so in that one, you can see it's a much higher, um, it's a much higher ratio of professional cases, which is interesting because this indicates a very strong interest in uh, in uh, intellectual property and trade secrets on the part of um, of the uh, of the the services in China. Um, about a third were insider threat. These overlap, of course, because some professional cases are insider threat cases, but not all. Um, but 20% are entrepreneurial. That is just somebody who wants to bring some technology back to China, and they're not getting any guidance from anybody. And 13% <clears throat> were driven by state-owned enterprise, uh, state-owned enterprises seeking the technology of uh, competitors or aspirational competitors anyway, uh, overseas. Uh, a very good book that dives deep into just one case, but which is illustrative, I think, is called The Scientist and the Spy by Mara Vistendahl. So a couple different cases, which are in this, this um, uh, realm, of economic espionage are uh, illustrative. <clears throat> Problem in studying uh, CCP espionage is the difficulty of obtaining an accurate overview. Um, and so that's why I decided to go out on a limb and offer the data in the preceding slide. We tend to focus on individual cases and make a big deal out of them. <clears throat> but um, sometimes we get no better view um, than the uh, the blind man and the elephant from the uh, the old story from India, presuming the animal is like a tree or a snake or a wall, depending on who we are. And it's safe to say, of course, that none of those uh, blind men spoke or read a word of elephant, which is unfortunately too true of so many 
books and uh, articles have been written about Chinese communist espionage by different uh, uh, commentators overseas. Quite often, it's as if somebody were in Beijing, were writing a book about the CIA without knowing a word of English. These two cases, though, are interesting because they fit some patterns hypothesized in previous slides. Um, facing heightened challenges abroad that stem from an increasingly assertive foreign policy, Beijing appears to be driving intelligence requirements for more aggressive operations. As they rush to fulfill these requirements, some mistakes and sacrifices um, may be occurring. And in both cases, these two gentlemen were caught. Um, and so is the loss of agents and others loyal to Beijing less of a concern to the CCP than we might think? It's an effort that uh, demands further study. And it's also interesting that the people who have been caught lately, who include um, people like Glenn Duffy Shriver, who was pictured earlier, um, James Fondren, Greg Bergeson, um, who've been caught by FBI lately. <clears throat> These were people who were involved in relatively short-term efforts. They were, not, um, they were not penetration agents who had been in place for decades and decades, like Larry Wutai Chin, who was also pictured in an earlier slide, um, or others, um, Bernard Borsico, for example. So since the people who have been caught lately have all been I think they've all been short-term um, short contractors with Beijing. Um, it may be that there are people <clears throat> who have um, been operating for decades and uh, have not been caught at all. So now to talk a bit uh, specifically about the reforms since 2015, the intelligence reforms were part of a um, of a military reform that, among other things, <clears throat> abolished the old military regions and districts and created theaters, <clears throat> excuse me, theaters of operation. So <clears throat> these, these are, there are problems that, um, that were in existence um, leading up to those reforms. Uh, among them were, were the discovery of lots and lots of, uh, of American agents in the, um, in the in the party and in the government and the discovery in 2014 so it was 2010 to 2012 when about 20 people were caught and uh, and shot and in 2014 uh, uh, there were about 40 cases that year of uh, Taiwan agents that were claimed to have been caught and uh, and so this this highlighted some problems uh, among them corruption in the party uh, the MSS uh, state security had a corruption problem, just like all parts of the party, uh, exemplified by the fall of a vice minister named Ma Jen in 2015 for using his influence to assist relatives. Uh, they also had their share of moles within that I already mentioned. Um, so we've touched on the apparent inconsistencies in training between the more the, the more professional agents and independent uh, state-owned enterprise agents as they clandestinely uh, acquire technology. But there are other gulfs too, um, even within the ranks <clears throat> of the MSS and within the ranks of military professionals, uh, according to Nick Eftimiatis, 
uh, and this is his table here that I've, I'm using with his permission. I've inserted the picture of Fang Fang, who was uh, famous recently uh, in a in a expose uh, several years after the fact. She was uh, here in the San Francisco Bay Area from 2011 to 2015, and um, <clears throat> in spite of the fact that she was just a student, she was a student at Cal State Hayward, uh, Cal State East Bay. Um, she was um, running around and was volunteering for campaigns. She was um, for local political campaigns. She was um, donating money. And it would be fair to ask, you know, who is this person and why does she have money? But the what happened there was that uh, she was able to get inside a number of campaigns and and um, and all she seemed to really be doing, except for some alleged affairs she had back east, is um, is um, um, getting biographic information of people who seem to be uh, seem to have some future potential in the Democratic Party, and I think a few Republicans as well. Um, and an interesting element of this is that she openly, in public places, met. Um, an MSS officer, a state security officer, who was operating, <clears throat> who was operating out of the um, the San Francisco consulate, the PRC consulate, San Francisco. Um, they would meet in public, and since he's an MSS guy, um, the FBI was following him around when he would leave leave the consulate and drive around here and there. So that's um, that's unusually sloppy and. And uh, it's, it's interesting that in, in some cases amongst MSS people, um, they operate carefully. In some cases, they don't. So um, finally, um, um, this may be familiar too, but it's definitely worth looking at um, uh, an aspect that directly impacts US companies in China is the apparent increased emphasis uh, in, the, in the current period of um, demands for technology transfer as a quid pro quo for doing business in China. Now, not every company is asked to do this. If you're making, uh, um, if you're making a consumer good in China, who cares? Probably no reason to go after that kind of technology. But if, you're, <clears throat> if you have a technology that is key to meeting a five-year plan goal, and that's, that's very important, of course, um, we're now on the 14th five-year plan, um, 2021 to 25. Um, then that makes your demand more, your your technology more in demand. Um, and apparently, as U.S.-China relations have deteriorated, the requests from Chinese partners or sponsors for technology transfer from American companies have more than doubled um, from 2019 to 2020, from 5% to 13%, according to the U.S.-China Business Council's survey of their membership, uh, a public document which is available at that URL below and easy to find with a web search. This might be in part because Beijing correctly perceives that American companies take the threat of illicit technology diversion and trade secret theft a little bit less seriously than does the U.S. government. It might also be an element of uh, get it while you can, that is uh, US-China relations aren't gonna be going, aren't gonna be recovering anytime soon as, as 
as far as uh, I can see anyway. And so it may be time to rush and obtain technology while there is still time. So in sum, um, China conducts espionage mostly like, mother, like other nations. Uh, they follow some predictable tradecraft and, and uh, practices common the world over, but uh, the needs and sensibilities of the CCP um, generate some differences, not the least of which is a radical approach to counterespionage and counterintelligence that has turned China into an ultra-surveillance state where, um, where it is almost impossible to to uh, avoid the gaze thereof. Um, that same fear of enemies may be a break on any massive recruitment of Chinese people overseas to engage in secret and repeat that's secret tasks. Um, it doesn't make any sense, as I mentioned earlier, to, to recruit tens of thousands of people. Uh, it's too unsecure. Uh, at the same time, the Thousand Talents program seems to be a mix of open recruitment of academics to return to China and teach, and more clandestine activities, highlighted by the case of Charles Lieber, not a Chinese national. Charles Lieber, the former chair of Harvard's chemistry and chemical biology department, whose work um, had uh, defense applications. In that sense, I find interesting the articles in China's Quest for Foreign Technology by uh, Spear and Stoff, Andrew Spear and Jeffrey Stoff, which provide evidence of longstanding Chinese intent to utilize their sons and daughters overseas, who are willing to, as the pithy slogans put it, repay the motherland and pick flowers in foreign lands to make honey in China. So um, I'm ending the presentation today sounding a bit like a broken record. This uh, fascinating situation requires further study. I encourage anybody in, uh, who has uh, power and influence out there to consider establishing a public-private effort to better define the activities of Beijing's espionage apparatus and influence operations publicly. Uh, identify them, not only for the benefit of government, but for the many ordinary people impacted by China's clandestine activities and, of course, of American firms doing business in China. So it's been a privilege to have this opportunity to present here today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Dr. Brazil, for your insightful lecture, and we'll take questions now. And if you have questions, please type in um, your questions in the Q&A chat box. So we have a couple of questions. The first question is, was Owen Lattimore recruited by the CCP? Mr. Lattimore um, made a trip to, um, now am I right about this? No, somebody who looks like Lattimore <laughs> made a trip to Yan'an in the uh, late 30s. I don't know. Um, that's a good question. And, uh, and I have not tried to study his particular case. However, there were, there were others that uh, certainly who traveled there to Yan'an and, uh, and uh, were, if not recruited, then at least encouraged to uh, assist. Thank you. The next question is, how is China stealing our industrial secrets? Can you explain? 
There are several ways that this is done. Um, one, of course, the, the most prominent one nowadays is hacking. Um, the Chinese side, like our very own American side, has been very adept at uh, combining the use of um, human intelligence operations with, um, with um, hacking. And of course, it's possible to obtain uh, untold, previously unimagined amounts of information by a good hack. However, there are some companies and other institutions where, <clears throat> where that, where the um, uh, the cyber element, uh, the IT um, resources have been nailed down pretty well. And so, when that happens, then one naturally turns to um, the human factor, and and so uh, this is why. It's always really important to have um, in any organization. It's important to have lots of shredders, so it's easy to shred information. It's important that laptops be locked down and not be available <clears throat> after hours. Now, I, I realize, of course, that we're in the middle of COVID and people aren't going into offices anymore. But um, but that day will come back, and and it's important not to leave things out, especially laptops that might be uh, might be compromised by somebody who is running around cleaning things and doesn't get paid very much money. Um, but um, beyond that, um, there are two basic methods. Um, one is to, uh, is to, is to uh, uh, da shu or insert an agent. They actually say that, da shu And, and uh, there you're inserting somebody who, who is already um, uh, trained and who is already convinced <clears throat> to provide uh, information to um, <clears throat> sorry to the to um, to a an intelligence organization. And the other way is to la chulai. <clears throat> that is draw out an individual who's already working there and. In that sense, um, of course, uh, sadly, uh, ethnic Chinese people are more vulnerable to that because they have relatives in China who can be used as leverage. Um, but uh, but that does not mean that um, that that every person who is from China is suspect, because um, again, they only approach people who uh, are not going to betray them or where they think the risk of betrayal is relatively low. Um, so there are plenty of, in, in our book, we list a lot of uh, these cases in chapter five, uh, chapter four of the book, and and they involve people who have been inserted, uh, but mostly people who have been drawn out, that is identified, uh, and then uh, uh, convinced to cooperate, uh, and then they end up uh, leaving, going to China. Uh, these are professional operations. Now another way, of course, is the um, is the um, uh, Thousand Talents program, and it's uh, similarly named uh, 100 Talents, 10,000 Talents uh, programs. Many of these operations are uh, to obtain technology, to obtain brain power, are perfectly legitimate. There's nothing illegal about them. Um, for China to convince a professor at some university to go back to China and live there and and uh, be paid well 
um, is fine as long as there are not um, contractual um, uh, violations involved there. In particular, as long as uh, the person is not already being funded by the U.S. taxpayer to produce technological results, and then they take those results to uh, China instead of uh, providing them to the um, to the um, party in the U.S. government to which they're contracted. And Charles Lieber was one of those. Um, he was convinced to take a position at the Wuhan University of Technology. He was paid a lot of money. Um, to go there on a regular basis, give lectures, uh, and to bring uh, microbiology um, and other um, technology to China, some of which had defense applications. Thank you. And the next question is, in your estimation, how deeply have the Chinese penetrated the U.S. military and intelligence community? That's a very hard question. Um, Certainly, there's been there's been some. Uh, every everybody who has enough uh, effort can can uh, uh, be successful in some penetration. Um, it's it's difficult to say how much there is uh, because all we know is what is has been exposed. But if you take these cases that are in uh, the book by Nick Eftimiatis and that are in our book. Um, then it's plain that, that these efforts have been going on for a long time. They're not going to cease anytime soon. Um, there's probably more effort than there used to be because um, the Chinese services have been getting better at um, doing these penetrations overseas because they've just been getting more practice and because um, they've managed to get rid of a lot of uh, old fogies who didn't speak any foreign language, who were not used to operating overseas, who were not used to, um, uh, to properly approaching a foreigner on Chinese soil, which is one of the favored um, methods to, to get somebody. And this is why the US um, has at various times had uh, travel restrictions from going to China. It, it was uh, even, even back before 1997, for example, cleared personnel could go to Hong Kong because Hong Kong was well-policed when it was still under the uh, control of the British, but they couldn't go to Macau because Macau was not so well-policed and people sometimes disappeared in Macau. Um, Macau being the old Portuguese uh, settlement there, which uh, in 1999 was returned to the mainland. So um, these things are occurring, but how much of it is occurring is uh, an open question. Thank you, Dr. Brazil. Could you briefly repeat the names of the two books that you mentioned at the beginning of the lecture? Yeah, so one is called, um, I'll even show them to you. I think I can do that if I move fast enough. So one is called um, um, China's, the first one, I'll hold it up here and you can see it. So Chinese Industrial Espionage by Hannes Molden and, and Puglisi, Chinese Industrial Espionage. And the other is China's Foreign Technology Beyond Espionage. So in the first case, they did a lot of espionage-related um, um, writing. 
in but it was uh, but it but they they outlined in in this first book they outlined the um, the library system that was uh, instituted um, to a, a dual track library system run by the military on one hand and run by the state council uh, on the civilian side and uh, Chinese researchers were expected to go to these libraries before they asked for any help in acquiring foreign technology. In other words, don't send us to go find something that we've already acquired. <clears throat> um, this one, on the other hand, is meant to look at, and it's more recent, is meant to look at um, technology acquisition that falls in between open and legal acquisition and uh, clandestine acquisition. Uh, in other words, gray area type stuff, um, which includes uh, the um, uh, Confucius Institutes, a little, little bit that they do, uh, and includes certainly the Thousand Talents program. There's a lot more writing on that in here. And uh, one particular essay that kept me up, I, I thought I would read this essay, getting ready to go to sleep, and I'll, and I'll nod off after all. This is an essay that is in, it's like a journal, a journal type essay that is in, uh, in a book like this. And uh, it's called Foreign Technology and the Surveillance State by Dahlia Peterson. And the Foreign Technology and the Surveillance State essay uh, actually acted like a cup of coffee. It was very, uh, very interesting, very well written, uh, slightly alarming. Thank you for sharing. Um, we have a couple of more interesting questions. Um, do you believe that China has a broader definition of espionage than we do? And can you expand on what activities you believe might fall into this gray zone that we don't recognize as offensive operations, but they do? Yeah, the FBI director, um, let's see, what did he get in trouble for saying? He got in trouble kind of for saying that uh, China has a whole of society effort um, to acquire intelligence overseas, which which seemed to indicate that you should avoid uh, Chinese restaurants except for takeout. Um, but um, that and that wasn't uh, that wasn't too good, nor was it very accurate. I think um, he revised that and calls it now a whole of government uh, effort which I think is more accurate because um, um, the thing about the Chinese government is that, is that uh, the party controls everything, North, South, East, and West, as Xi Jinping likes to say. And so this means that, um, that uh, um, the requirements for technology, for example, and of course the, the Americans don't really go out and collect technology and give it to GM or Boeing, um, it's that's illegal, and uh, it would be a can of worms to go do that because then you'd have to either give it to everybody and risk exposure, or only favor certain industries. But in China, favoring certain industries is not a problem because they have state-owned enterprises and they have national champions that are not state-owned enterprises. Um, uh, the most prominent example there is Huawei, the uh, the uh, telecommunications company is a national champion, but not a state-owned enterprise. So, so they are able to do a lot of coordination because, uh, because uh, state-owned enterprise uh, CEOs and top officers, for example, are appointed by the party organization department. They're placed. 
by the party organization department, which is one of its uh, uh, core businesses, one of its most powerful elements in the party. And, and so, uh, and they're guided by um, the five-year plans. The five-year plans have been very um, uh, successful in, in the last uh, 20 years in, in um, uh, focusing on uh, technology and uh, um, economic targets. Um, and so certainly acquiring technology is one of these things uh, that is uh, different. And, and then uh, you look again at the, um, um, the uh, Thousand Talents uh, program, um, which is a which is a program that gives money to universities, for example, and other organizations to go out and find the talent that they need. So this money enables um, um, different universities and other um, organizations to uh, give um, big fat offers to people overseas to go back to China and, uh, and uh, contribute to um, to national development, and and they have a um, uh, a, um, a system set up in the United States to help people move back. That is, uh, once you're chosen, once you're approved, then it's like being moved overseas by the federal government or by a big company. Um, everything's paid for. You know, the Packers come. They 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 box up your household goods, and away you go. With a, you know, tickets for the family and uh, and a hotel when you arrive and all that sort of thing. So um, so these don't really qualify as espionage, um, uh, except that um, that sometimes there's a violation of the Economic Espionage Act in the United States that uh, that prohibits the um, um, unauthorized transfer of um, of trade secrets. Uh, uh, and other uh, forms of technology without uh, authorization because there's somebody else's property. Thank you. And the next question is, do you think the boom in AI assisted technology will make the data stolen in the OPM <clears throat> hack and similar incidents weaponizable? Should former federal employees be concerned if traveling to China? Um, probably, probably weaponizable. Um, of course, you know, the main problem in any intelligence uh, system is, uh, uh, does the established analytic capability match the um, inflow of information? So can you take intelligence information and, and process it quickly into finally evaluated uh, processed intelligence that is, uh, that is evaluated properly so that uh, you know you're not just getting a bunch of noise or, uh, or uh, anecdotal uh, information. And certainly um, artificial intelligence <clears throat> and um, related algorithms are able to sort masses of information much more easily. Uh, the OPM hack, of course, uh, involved millions and millions of records, all sorts of people. Uh, when, when that was revealed, 
I think it was 2015. Um, then uh, I remember working in South Carolina at that point for a chemical uh, company. And uh, there was a handful of people uh, all within shouting distance in my office who, <laughs> who were affected by that, including me. Because uh, <clears throat> we had all filled out an SF, uh, SF-86, I think it is, um, Standard Form 86 uh, for security clearance uh, earlier in our careers. Um, and uh, th those things are, are large. They're, they're, they, they take a couple hours to fill out, even if you have all the information in front of you. That's a lot of information. Um, and AI certainly must help there. Thank you. The next question is, there were reports that China was spying on African leaders using the very building they donated to Africa through African Union. In your opinion, how big is Chinese espionage activities in Africa? Yeah, these are, um, I, I want to emphasize, by the way, that, uh, that uh, these efforts are pretty standard. They're, they're nothing particularly, there's nothing particularly dastardly about them. Um, and, and people should realize that, that efforts like this are like they're normal uh, in the history of the world. Um, it doesn't mean that we should allow them to continue. We should, of course, uh, the, 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 um, uh, the solution to these problems is good counterintelligence work and, uh, and uh, properly funding good counterintelligence work. Again, anybody out there with power and money, um, it's, it's necessary for us to be much more serious in funding counterintelligence work in this country and, uh, and uh, elsewhere. But, um, but yeah, um, what better opportunity would there be for planting audio and uh, video and uh, data, um, uh, gathering um, uh, capabilities than to build the building yourself. Um, there were certainly efforts like that against uh, the U.S. Embassy um, building when it was uh, constructed a few decades ago, the most recent one in Moscow. Um, when the Americans supplied a Boeing jet to Jiang Zemin to be the Chinese Air Force One, guess what? It was filled with, uh, with devices planted there by the U.S. government with the, the uh, cooperation of Boeing. And we only found out about that when the Chinese found it and uh, brought in some reporters to see here's here here it all is and and so on. Um, the uh, uh, it's been publicized that the National Security Agency was cooperating with Dell Computer to um, to embed um, uh, capabilities in in uh, uh, mainframes and in um, desktop computers being shipped all over the world, particularly to China. Um, and the Chinese are doing similar things as well um, regarding the use of technology uh, and, uh, and uh, to take advantage of construction. The, the Belt and Road, the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative uh, probably provides all sorts of opportunities there. So this is just, um, good espionage practice. It's not a cockroach running up our arm, you know, we don't have to panic, uh, but we do need to spend more money on uh, countering these efforts. Thank you. And the next question is, 
In your estimation, what is the percentage of Chinese nationals who engage in espionage, that be it technological or IP, for their own economic benefit versus those who explicitly for the Chinese government? Versus those who what? For the uh, economic benefit versus those explicitly for the Chinese government. Oh, okay. Well, um, according to um, according to what we were able to gather, and according to Nick Eftemiata's, um, a very high percentage are professional, um, professionally run efforts by actual intelligence agencies, be they civilian or military. Um, and a smaller percentage is uh, people who are acting on their own, um, and uh, an equally uh, uh, smaller but still significant percentage is uh, is uh, by people who are acting on behalf of the state-owned enterprise. And uh, it, the, it's it's good to take a look at two FBI propaganda videos uh, that I may have mentioned before. Um, one is called Game of Pawns. That's like in chess, pawn, game of pawns, which is about a professional case run against an American student and where he was um, uh, recruited in Shanghai while he was living there. Uh, and the idea was that he would get into the Foreign Service or the CIA. And the other one, starring the same bad guy, um, is, uh, I mean, the Actors Union must have something to say about this. The other one starring the same bad guy uh, is uh, it's called uh, Company Man. And Company Man is about a more amateurish um, and uh, clumsy effort to recruit a dissatisfied engineer at a, uh, a uh, uh, high-tech glass company in New York State. And, um, and there was a big difference there in the way that uh, these uh, two operations were run. Uh, and the videos are illustrative of that difference. But, uh, but these, of course, are only the cases that we know about. Whether they're representative or not of the unknown cases is uh, hard to say. Thank you. And the next question is, with the tightening of security within China, do you think that there is still a future for human operations within China by other countries, such as the US and Taiwan? Yeah, there is. Uh, it's just going to become harder and harder. And, and, uh, and I would say that the advent of artificial intelligence is, uh, and, and uh, associated technologies, uh, surveillance technology, um, it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of history. Um, of course, I don't know what counter um, efforts might take hold, but but I do know that um, every service in the world with interest in finding out what's going on in China beyond uh, what the party says is going on, every single service is trying to um, solve this problem. It's not going to be easy, um, but. Uh, but this, this spy versus spy stuff has been going on for thousands of years. Thank you. Um, and the next question is, we make the case for ourselves to aim for whole 
of government strategies to deal with grand strategic threats, that concept. It seems that these days, China goes beyond lip service to actually mm -hmm. executing this effectively. But is this true? Uh, is this true? Watching diplomats practice wolf diplomacy and the military getting aggressive in the South China Sea appears at times to be counterbalanced by more benign actors in China. <clears throat> How are do these forces balance out in China and what are future directions looking like? Mm. Um, can you read just the first sentence of that question again, the first, sure. very first part? Yeah, it was a bit long question. Um, so. I'll just uh, repeat the question again. Um, we make the case for ourselves to aim for whole of government strategies to deal with grand strategic threats in concept. It seems that these days China goes beyond lip service to actually executing this effectively. But is this true? Watching diplomats practice wolf diplomacy and the military getting aggressive in the South China Sea appears at times to be counterbalanced by more benign actors in China. How are, do these forces balance out? And, and um, how do these forces balance out in China and what are future directions looking alike? Well, the reason that the Chinese are quite frankly better at whole of government efforts is because of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, throughout their history, they have managed to bounce back from all sorts of difficulties. <clears throat> um, they are, um, they are at times a, a corrupt organization, at times an inefficient organization. Um, there are times, there have been times when the um, central government has not been in control of their local officials, particularly in the late 1990s and into the um, first decade of this century. But uh, the truth is that that uh, eventually they they get a they grab a hold of any problem and they um, do their best to solve it. And the COVID-19 uh, pandemic is an example. At first, over the first, um, I keep hearing 57 days, over the first 57 days of the, um, of the COVID <clears throat> pandemic, uh, as it uh, existed in China, the party didn't handle it very well. Um, they, uh, their first instinct was to cover things up and uh, that was even after the central government uh, figured out what was going on. But it didn't take too long after that for them to decide that uh, they needed to not withhold information from the World Health Organization and they needed to um, mobilize society to, to uh, bring the pandemic under control. And they were very successful at that. Um, much more successful than we have been. And the reason is that they have party committees going all the way down to the local level. And these party committees um, that, that are in, um, you know, it used to be neighborhood-based uh, in, the, in the old days before um, the vast housing construction boom that began in the 90s. Um, uh, they used to be... Um, Based with, they used to be based on, the, those efforts were based on people who had been living in a neighborhood for uh, their whole lives and they knew everybody and so on. Um, now, it's, uh, of course, we have um, apartment complexes that have only been around for a decade or so uh, or even less. 
Um, but they, they, uh, they don't just write those places off. Um, they form party committees in, uh, in, um, in those places. Uh, one scholar who's done a lot of work there is named David Bray, B-R-A-Y, David Bray of the University of Sydney. So he's done <clears throat> a lot of field work in China um, in these uh, newer housing compounds and has been able to show how effective the party committees are uh, in those places. And so this is why the party was able to, to uh, when, it, when it was ready, when they decided to do it, um, they took control of the COVID situation. And this is why life in China is pretty normal right now. Um, so when it comes to other efforts, um, they can be equally effective. Uh, they don't have to entirely rely on shooting people when they catch them doing something bad, although that's always an option. Thank you, Dr. Brazil. We have a couple of more questions. So the next one is, where in the Western Hemisphere do you think China posed the most threat? And there's no, there's no um, elaboration on what kind of threat, right? That's just, that's the question, right? Okay. Well, um, presuming we're speaking about uh, not military threat or anything, but, um, but espionage, then in their history, they've always gone to where the secrets are. During the war against Japan, for example, um, they uh, worked hard to get people to volunteer to, and during the Civil War that uh, began after World War II was over with and ended with the 1949 victory, um, they worked hard to get people to volunteer to go into um, the Dragon's Lair, so to speak, to go into um, areas where the Japanese were, to areas where uh, the Nationalist uh, Army was, and where the Nationalist government was, in order to um, um, engage in clandestine efforts to recruit people uh, and get inside of government offices and steal secrets. And the same thing is true today. Um, if, if it's a place with, um, with um, uh, secrets, then that's where they are focused. But they don't just go places where there are Chinese communities. Again, I want to make that clear. Um, people like... Um, Greg Bergerson, James Fondren, uh, Glenn Duffy Shriver are some of the latest examples of Americans who were recruited either in China in the case of, um, of um, uh, Glenn Duffy Shriver or over the web through LinkedIn. Um, so just like, uh, just like when I look for people to subscribe to my newsletter, which is called China Espionage Research Update. I go into LinkedIn and I type in Defense Intelligence Agency and so forth. And I look for people who um, have worked on China before who might be interested in subscribing to this thing. Um, then, uh, and by the way, if you want to subscribe to China uh, Espionage Research Update, then uh, just go to mapbrazil.net, that's M-A-T-T-B-R-A-Z-I-L dot N-E-T, mapbrazil.net, and uh, there's a link there where you can uh, sign up. But anyway, um, 
they use nowadays LinkedIn and other online resources to find people to recruit, which means they don't have to go go anywhere. Uh, they just have to make contact. And like as an author, uh, I want to gain readership and uh, and get the word out on what I've written and so forth. And uh, anybody who asks me for a LinkedIn uh, connection, I'll just say yes. Because it doesn't bother me if it's somebody in Shanghai who might be up to no good, but I just don't pay any attention to their messages. Thank you. And the next question is, what is your mitigation strategy? I would say it's um, for concerning this um, problem. I would say that that the mitigation, uh, of course, I'm just a historian. <laughs> not a government official. Again, I haven't had a security clearance since 1995. Although I've been reading as much as I can. I would say that um, what needs to be done here, it, we don't need to, to go to the Chinese side and say, won't you stop spying on us? Won't you stop gathering economic espionage information? Because they're not going to stop. Uh, the, 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 the most laughable one, I think, is your China 2025 uh, plan is so evil and dastardly. You must stop doing that if you want to have good relations. Come on. They've been trying to catch up with the West uh, since the late Qing dynasty. The self-strengthening movement, the Great Leap Forward, uh, and so forth. Um, this is, uh, uh, of course, they want to catch up with and uh, surpass the West. And nobody's going to stop them from doing that. Um, instead, what we need to do is to employ better counterintelligence. And when we find them uh, doing too much of the kinds of things that we don't want them to do, um, there's always uh, ways to, to uh, increase pain points. So I think we should be sober about this, um, increase funding for uh, counterintelligence work, increase language training. Back when I was a young man, um, sometime in the 19th century, there was, um, there was the National Defense something or other scholarships uh, for people who were studying Chinese and Russian and, um, and a few other languages from countries where we wanted to know more about what was going on there. People were given small scholarships to study Chinese and Russian. We don't have any of that today. These things need to be revived. Uh, if we want to be, if we want to figure out how to to mitigate these problems, we have to have people, uh, not only in government but in business, who understand what's going on. So we need a better um, number one, a better um, uh, public education effort about this at the unclassified level. Number two, we need to fund languages and area studies much better than we have. Um, number three, we need to properly fund um, counterintelligence investigations. Why, for example, I, it's some awful, stupid, big number percentage-wise of FBI agents who are doing cases on China who can barely say ni hao. Um, that's dumb. It shouldn't be that way. We need to train people better. Thank you. And uh, could you comment on any intelligence dimensions to the Belt and Road Initiative? 
Yeah, I think it's mostly, I, I suspect that it's mostly influence operations. Um, the, if, if you were to break it down by percentage, and of course, this is all secret, I don't have the slightest idea, but I'm just guessing that <clears throat> influence operations are much more, um, much more um, dominant than intelligence ones, but uh, because in part because there's, uh, there's, um, there's an infrastructure for those things too in the International Liaison Department and the United Front Work Department under the party, which are powerful institutions. But um, certainly for construction projects, uh, et cetera, where you're bringing people in to, um, to work on, on uh, building something for a host government, uh, there have to be plenty of opportunities, but, but um, uh, one thing I hope to do in the next book project, um, supposedly we're going to be traveling normally again in Q4 of this year, fingers crossed. Um, one thing I hope to do is to do some amount of travel and interview people um, uh, in person because, of course, people aren't going to tell you squat over LinkedIn or email when it comes to these sensitive matters. Um, In-person interviews are necessary. So I'm hoping to discover as much as I can about uh, these efforts in further research this year and next year. Thank you. And the next question is, for an extended and likely continued period of time, the MSS targeted ethnic Chinese first, second, and third generation residents in the U.S. as potential sources or at a minimum support assets. Um, over the past years, we've seen instances where U.S. nationals that are non-Chinese have been increasingly targeted successfully. Do you see this as growing trend or merely as targets of opportunity? I think it's, it's um, uh, again, going all the way back to the 30s, uh, foreigners were recruited by uh, what was then called the social, um, um, the social department, the Shokwe Bu under the party. Uh, which was their main intelligence arm. They worked mostly uh, domestically. There was a little bit of overseas work, but not much. Um, um, what was his name? Ji Chao, Ji Chao Ju, Ji Chao Zhou, um, the, who became a famous economist after the 1949 victory. He was actually sent overseas by Zhou Enlai, um, and he uh, was... Uh, probably connected with some um, uh, operations in the United States run by Moscow, um, but people he befriended um, uh, later went to China to live, uh, people who worked in the Treasury Department and uh, one other place in the US government. Um, going all the way back then, um, uh, there were efforts concerning foreign, uh, against foreign people um, and they just, then whether or not they were pursued depended on the availability of people who could do the work, who had the foreign language required, who had, who were able to be trained in the skills needed uh, to do this work. And, and uh, it's always been easier, of course, to deal with, uh, with Chinese people as subjects of recruitment um, because there's no language barrier, because they have, um, leverage in China against uh, relatives of, of the person um, who's targeted. But, um, but again, um, 
the Chinese side has always, just like any other intelligence agency worth its salt, they go to where the intelligence is. They don't just sit on their hands. And, and um, uh, there's been, uh, even, even during the Cultural Revolution, Bernard Boursicot was uh, the French diplomat. To, um, uh, you can, there's a decent movie there called M. Butterfly. Um, starring John Lone, and I um, can't remember the name of the English actor, um, and Ian Richardson. Uh, th that's not a bad representation of uh, what was done there. And interestingly, um, uh, it appears that Joanne Lai was, uh, was uh, briefed on this by, um, by um, uh, the then Ministry of Public Security Minister uh, in 1965, according to Joe and Lai's uh, chronicles, uh, he apparently was briefed as soon as Borsico was uh, was um, uh, recruited uh, in in the uh, one year just before the Cultural Revolution, and he continued to be um, uh, run for uh, well over a decade after that. Uh, so it really just depends on whether or not there's. Uh, um, there are people who can do the job. And lately, as uh, has, has been written about uh, in the news media, um, MSS has been going after people specifically, college graduates who have English, Arabic, Uyghur, Tibetan, Korean uh, language capability so that they can be used not only for work on the web, I'm sure, but also for human intelligence work. Thank you. Due to the limited time, we'll just take two more questions. Um, the next question is, how can we discover China's espionage activities in the United States? Are there any effective methods to find them? Really good counterintelligence work is key. And it's not only, um, of course, uh, in person, following around people who are known to be um, to have intelligence duties as part of their portfolio, diplomats, but also um, uh, to, to uh, carefully screen people coming to the United States, to uh, do work on the, on the web, to discover approaches made to, um, to Americans via LinkedIn or other um, methods. It's, it's really just uh, good counterintelligence work is, is key, I think. Thank you. And the last question for today's event is, what can the average American citizen do to counter the Chinese Communist parties uh, besides not contributing to their military machine by buying their products, uh, China threats? Hmm. Um, I would say, um, number one, vote for people who are not um, we're not jingoistic about these things. The, the more that we are um, the more that we are distracted by um, panicky stuff um, where uh, you know we must keep out all immigrants because they're dangerous, et cetera, et cetera. Um, immigrants are actually a strength because uh, with with immigration we have people, who become loyal Americans and who have language and cultural uh, abilities that we need to 
accomplish intelligence work uh, more effectively and counter counter uh, intelligence work more effectively. And so, uh, adhering to our values, I think, is very important. That we are a nation of immigrants. That uh, that uh, we um, we tend to, uh, especially with the second generation, but also with the first generation of immigrants, we tend to get people who have um, who have uh, an affinity for the United States, and that we should not be suspecting people based on their ethnicity. Um, beyond that, um, again, I think it's necessary for the government to lead an effort, and if the government isn't going to do it, then industry ought to lead the effort to educate people about uh, these problems so that they're smart about them instead of being dumb about them. Um, unfortunately, when it comes to um, efforts by China, there's not very much out there. Uh, there is certainly no equivalent on television to the Americans, which was, uh, which was written by um, uh, a former uh, CIA officer. And and gave some fairly, except for the fact that it was uh, there was a lot of blood and a lot of excitement, um, wasn't a bad representation of what Russian illegal activity um, uh, illegals, uh, what Russian illegal activity, non diplomatic cover activity uh, was all about. And of course, it was being produced as a group of people was found in the Anna Chapman case. Um, there's. Uh, there are lots of books about the KGB, you know, there's, and during the Cold War and about uh, modern, uh, um, modern efforts, there are uh, books written by Russian emigres, there are books uh, written about uh, MI6, the Secret Intelligence Service, and MI5, the Security Service in Britain. Uh, there are books written about the CIA, there isn't much written about China. And so um, one thing I would urge is that uh, is for people who are interested in this, who, who are developing Chinese language capability, to consider um, uh, writing about this area as a field of study. Uh, it's been slow to develop because a lot of China scholars don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Um, but, uh, but I think that, that uh, we need to, to uh, do better research, publicly available research uh, in this area. Um, so that uh, so that there is not only not only that that uh, people in in uh, the private sector have an appreciation for this kind of activity and and so they'll recognize it when they see it, but also to uh, to keep the people in government honest because after all when you're operating behind the veil of classified information and everything is secret then. Uh, then uh, you don't have much rigorous examination of your work necessarily, uh, although of course uh, it does exist. Thank you, Dr. Brazil, for such an insightful lecture and taking so many interesting and important questions. And thank you everybody for joining us today. I'd like to share um, the Asian Issue Lecture Series upcoming event on February 24th with General John Tillily, a former commander of the Combined Forces Command in South Korea, and he will be presenting a lecture on the ROK-US alliance and the threat. And this concludes our presentation today, and thank you very much.